Welcome to another episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Melissa Vaughn, and I'm here joined by my cohorts. Brianne. Jesse. Yay, we're all here. And we're talking about the history of mostly women in city council politics here in Richmond, but we'll start with a Virginia-wide yeah. source to begin with. Since it's International Women's Month. It is. It's Women's Month. Our month. Mm-hmm. We get them. And it's still Black History Month. We're just running that bitch all the way into the summer. Just well, to let y'all know. It deserves a do-over because, wow, was that crap. <laughs> um, whew. That's one for the books. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That's going to be in the history book. It is. Yes. That's why I'm buying uh, all these books. I'm telling you. I've been telling y'all stock up your library. This is going to be a whole textbook like era. chapter. Oh anyway. Mm-hmm. Building that library. That's right. Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through a couple of notable women in the history of Richmond City Council politics, as well as we're going to start out actually with Amanute. Am I saying that? right? How do I I say that? AKA Matoica, AKA Pocahontas for everyone else in the country who's been taught that that's what her name was. Virginia's first political pawn. So I'm going to be going through these things. I'm going to be uh, rattling off some facts and I'm going to be soliciting reactions from Jesse and Fran. Yikes. Pocahontas, as most people should know, is an informal childhood nickname, meaning playful one or mischievous girl, um, not her actual name. Uh, The British romanticized her and just decided Pocahontas was much better than Amanute or her ritual name known to her family as Matoica. You know that area we have out in Chesterfield? Yeah. That's named for her. Hmm. She did not sing about the colors of her wind with a trash panda. She didn't? No. That is not how that went. She was not a princess. Yeah, there is literally no princess in Native American society. No, it is a European construct. Of course. She actually was the lowliest, kind of lastliest daughter of Powhatan. She was the daughter of a common woman, even though they were a matriarchal society because her mother was a common woman. She was of hardly any consequence to Powhatan, Uh uh, which is a huge misconception. So when Captain John Smith swooped in and saved all the brown people uh, in Virginia, she was nine years old. Nine freaking years old is about how old she was. Amanute. Get used to that name. That is her name. Mm -hmm. When she supposedly had the diplomatic foresight to save him from beheading, you know, she was nine. She was nine. Common child. Okay. Later in his life, Smith uh, wrote, dashing stories about his travels and so he basically aged her up hypersexualized her a little bit you know made it super romantic to sell books that did not happen that way uh she probably was playing outside of a tent somewhere when john smith met with powhatan mm-hmm. can we just add a trash panda in there anyway because that was so cool it was really cute i, I really liked miko yeah <laughs> She probably did have a couple of friends, you know, woodland friends, seeing as, you know, how she was so Disney-fied and magical. Of course, because she's a princess. Seeing as how she was one of the lowliest daughters anyway, can you imagine a man of the time who led a tribe, many tribes of 20,000 plus people, hinging diplomatic relations with white invaders on a nine-year-old girl's word? Doubt it. Doubt it. When she was actual 13, which also gross, they... 
you know, they thought 13 was a great age for sex. Um, Babies and marriage. Right. But when she was about an actual 13 years old, she married a Powhatan soldier. And because she was not really considered royal lineage, they did it by choice. Oh. And what I thought was rather interesting was three years later, their marriage was gone. Oh. He was maybe dead. They were maybe divorced because in that society, you actually could get a divorce. Oh. No problem. Within that same year, though, she was kidnapped by the English from her village. Of course. The English threatened to decimate this town that she was living in if they didn't hand her over for ransom from her dad, who was like, whatevs. Yeah, exactly. Y'all can keep her as a (sighs) diplomatic child. Oh, God. Yeah, of Thomas Dale, the leader of the community there, the colony there. She was a pawn in in all ways. So no, she was not in love with John Smith. I'm sure she was not, there was nothing willing about her, you know, staying with the English. But uh, they decided to teach her about Christ. Of course. Because, you know, that's a part of colonization. Dress her up like a a white English lady and teach her English and manners and blah, blah, blah. Assimilation. This is terrible. I just thought of, um, you know, those memes that are like such and such starter pack. Yeah. Colonization starter pack. Uh Christianity. Yes. Gotta have it. They decided, they, meaning Thomas Dale and Powhatan, decided that she would be great as a diplomatic tool to solidify the friendship and transfer of land and goods and all these wonderful things. They married her off to John Rolfe, who swears he was in love with her. Of course. Tobacco farmer John Rolfe. I loved her. Mm-hmm. I loved her so much, and we got married. And then we decided, after two years, we're going to go explore England. Mm-hmm. She just loved it so much, being paraded around like an exotic princess. Of course. Yeah, she loved it so much, she was depressed the entire time. Mm. And then when they went to leave, and they got on the boat with her son, Thomas, she died before they even made it out of the English Channel of an ammonia-like disease that she probably never would have gotten she had she been left the hell alone in her homeland. Yeah. White people do that to you. They do. They really do that to you. <laughs> um, but you know what else they do to you? <laughs> what they do? They bury you in an unmarked grave on the side of a river and dump your son off on the nearest uncle never to be seen again. Yeah. Well, you know. And that's the story of Pocahontas, children. <laughs> That's where we begin our journey through women in Richmond politics. How do y'all how do y'all feel about this initial reactions? Mm. (laughs) I feel feel like that's a a soap opera. Mm. I mean that's telling of how women have mm. been treated historically. Especially women of color, like Mm -hmm. exploited and used and then thrown away. Mm-hmm. In a hole. Yeah, like they never did a darn or well. good thing on their own in their lives. Or yeah. well. Or know. well. You know, whatever. But hey, it's all right. We've got a savior coming up in Eleanor Parker Shepard. <clears throat> She's a civic activist, housewife, and Democratic politician who became the first woman to be elected to the city council of Richmond, Virginia, and later Richmond's first female mayor. Before you keep going there really quickly, yeah. can I just interject and ask what year did she first get elected? I just wanted to really quickly. 1954. Okay, so 1954. I just wanted, since we went from Pocahontas, or. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of give that frame of reference for like how Eight. many first, hundreds of years. Gotcha. First female elected to Richmond City Council. So 1954. 1954. Okay. And we had city council since, um, you know, 
before the revolution. There's a frame of reference. Good interjection. She's a housewife and she was born in Georgia. She's a housewife and she got elected to city council? Oh, but just wait. So she's a housewife who married a traveling salesman and they finally settled down in Ginter Park in 1936. Fancy. And she quickly became active in the Ginter Park Parent Teacher Association and Ginter Park Baptist Church, as well as all of the other affluent do-gooder white lady clubs that she could pack in, including something I never knew existed, the Soroptimist Club. What's that? A worldwide volunteer service organization for women who work for peace. What? And in particular to improve the lives of women and girls in local communities and throughout the world. Women, all all women and girls or just the white ones? That's a really good question because you know what? Nothing ever specifies, so I'm quite led to believe. Hmm. Okay. Just wondering. In 1952, she became president of the Richmond Federation of PTAs during a time of intense unrest over race and school segregation. Mm-hmm. So something that's interesting is in, in like some of the reading I've done about Richmond history and specifically with education around that time period. And not I'm trying to remember. I was kind of trying to Google it really quick of if it what years it was because I was trying to figure out exactly where she would have fit into this. Mm-hmm. But the time period that I'm specifically thinking of is around integrated busing. Okay, and that was probably closer I think in the 60s so it might be a decade later her too okay so what's interesting is that the integration argument in Richmond and specifically like with busing it it would not surprise me if she was in favor of segregation and against um, the busing side of things honestly Mm -hmm. knowing that she's coming from these um, white run organizations what tended to happen is that the place that people would advocate for is like they don't want their schools to close and when I say they I mean white middle class people right and they want to retain uh, the schools that are neighborhood schools right and it's also people that want to stay there but don't necessarily want to move out of the city which is also where you have the white flight that plays in to Mm -hmm. where they then you ultimately have a different demographic in Richmond that continues to change. Right. And that kind of plays into it. But really, there was um, there was actually a huge, in the 60s, like a drive where there was like a caravan that went up to D.C. to protest against the uh, cross-city lines busing, forced integration, basically. Yeah. And it was really a lot of, when you see pictures of it, it it's like support neighborhood schools, support local schools. And it's a lot of just obviously white people. But it would be a tier that I would expect that she might have been of that um, time period. And by time period, sorry, I mean vein of thinking. Gotcha. In 1954, she ran and won city council and won every subsequent term after until resigning in 1968. Wow. Yeah, when she won a seat in the Virginia General Assembly where she served four terms after that. Yep. <laughs> I could definitely see that leap and jump going from somebody who's coming from like an education advocacy as far as like PTAs and everything like that. You're getting involved with your kids' schools. You're a white female during this time period. And mm-hmm. then, you know, maybe your city's changing and then you say, you know what I'm going to do? Run for General Assembly, which also happens to be two years before the annexation of Chesterfield County. Chesterfield. Okay. Mm-hmm. Context. So in 1960, her fellow city council members elected her vice mayor and then elected her mayor in 62. So she became the first woman ever elected mayor of an incorporated city in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yikes. On her inauguration day, the photo that the Times-Dispatch ran was of her adjusting her hat. Of course. Because that was the most important part. The person I have in my head, I've never, I haven't seen a picture of her, but the person I have in my head right now is... Um, Helen Marie Taylor. You've actually (laughs) seen her. You have seen her. Her portrait hangs at the Valentine. At the Valentine, it sure does. She does does bear um, a striking resemblance to that old bat. Oh, snap. 
<laughs> so yeah, um, just have uh, Bill introduce you to uh, Shepard hmm. the next time you go to the Valentine. Okay. In her two years as mayor, she promoted better health care for the city's children. Oh. Championed urban renewal. What the hell is that? Right? What the hell is that? <laughs> Through the Richmond Citizens Association, which became Richmond Forward, mm-hmm. whose current mission is relationship-based community organizers driven by the belief that inclusion and empowerment will lead to a thriving Richmond. Mm-mm. They're different organizations. So, but what I want to bring up is I've done this research because I had the same cool. exact moment once where I was like, wait, what? <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so Richmond Forward, the current one, actually decided to intentionally name it. After this one. After it because of like symbolically trying to move Move past like that point, taking it back, yeah, taking it back, that's, reclaiming their time. Yeah, like that's okay. th- that was my impression when I was reading everything about it was that that's what it was. Where like the Richmond Citizens Association, they became Richmond Forward, and then I think they disbanded, and then this Richmond Forward established. And they were like, but, let's do this the right way. Yeah, okay. and like the Richmond Citizens Association would definitely be have been one of the groups because the context I was researching it in was around the context I of um, busing and, and cross district lines and people that were advocating for or against it. Yeah, look at all these. Dots connecting. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of snatched that to fix it. Got it. Eleanor was considered a bit of a progressive in her day, which I think is interesting because she was instrumental in paving the way for Interstate 95. Hmm. But um. Also, while she was in the GA, she sponsored a bill to create Virginia Commonwealth University. But hey, guys, check it out. Working with the Bird Organization Lieutenant and Veteran State Senator Lloyd C. Bird, not the same relation to the Bird Organization, but still working with them to combine two existing institutions of higher education, the Medical College of Virginia and the Richmond Professional Institute. They succeeded with that on March 1st, 1968, the Bird Organization. So now you do see where she fits in. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like it, this is this is um, especially relevant since we've been talking last month a lot about the racist roots of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Yep. So here we yeah. go. Also, during not this that time ago. while she was in the GA, <laughs> no, not that long ago, people around Richmond joked that ERA didn't stand for the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. What? It stood for Eleanor's running again. Bye. I can't. Uh, she became the first chairman of the Virginia General Assembly Committee in 1974 uh, when she assumed the leadership of the House Education Committee. So she's still champion for education. Yep. And served on finance and health and welfare. Uh, yeah. Champion in that education for whom? Kinda. After she got out of politics, she went back to all the do-gooder, affluent white lady clubs. Mm-hmm. And that's... That collect coats for black kids. Okay, I got it. Oh, yeah, and uh, Overby Shepherd was partially named after her. Mm. The other part, though, that sh- the name that you should remember is Ethel Thompson Overby, Richmond's first African-American female principal. Yeah. Let's give a shout-out to Miss Overby. Yep. Sorry, I just got, like, internally enraged <laughs> at the fact that... <laughs> <laughs> I'm boiling. <laughs> Like, at the fact that you decided to name a school after Richmond's first African-American female principal and the first city councilwoman, first mayor who, based on context clues, who, based on context clues, would have been fighting against integration and busing across district lines. And and instrumental in ripping apart neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, by um, pushing for Interstate 95. Our first female mayor, ladies and gentlemen. Literally just enraged. Continue. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next lady of note that we're going to talk about is Ruth J. Herrink. She was on city council for a mere two years. 
Mm. Uh, she is a Richmond native, a graduate of Thomas Jefferson High School. She served as director of the Virginia Department of Professional and Occupational Regulation under three governors. But during her two years on council, she voted to open Park District roundhouses to African-American citizens because she thought it was the right thing to do. Aww. She also revealed how she voted despite being told that in an era of civil unrest, the revelation might damage her political career. She was well, transparent? Yes. And oh, maybe man. it did damage her career because she was only on there for two mm-hmm. years, one term. They don't like loud women. No, but she clearly was loud. Uh, she served on the Richmond Human Rights and Human Relations Commission and the Commonwealth of Virginia Commission on the Status of Women. Okay, girl. She was a founding member of the Richmond Forum, which still draws speakers, still going, and a charter member of the Women's Bank, a former bank staffed at the beginning exclusively by women. Okay, girl. Yeah. Mama told me That's interesting just because earlier today I was in a room um, and uh, someone was speaking about, you know, their political record specifically and like their experience in politics. And the topic of conversation was really what are you willing to lose? To lose, yeah. For change Mm -hmm. and doing the right thing and figuring out, you know, who you are as somebody that's an individual before you come into politics. Also, as your politician, who do you want to be? And are you willing to operate at the cost of knowing it might lose you your job? It might lose you your, your source of revenue, whatever that is. It might impact your family and might even at some point take your life. Making decisions and to be a progressive change leader in politics, recognizing that it's not going to be easy and you might have to be willing to lose something. I think that that's something here where it might be interesting that if people say it might damage her political career, we don't know much about this one individual. I could be Mm -mm. completely wrong. But I think it is something to recognize of like that is some of the reality of things that happen. Like there might be people that even now recognize like I could win one term, but I'm going to work in a way that I will never win that re-election. You know who I'm thinking about? AOC. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She fights like she ain't got nothing to lose. Just... Take it off the earrings and the rings and just mm-hmm. throw it in. And she has some. She has some. She's had some bad moments recently where she's had some stupid answers to questions that show she's hasn't quite thought her way all the way through all these things. But she's young, you know. Everybody makes mistakes. Maybe she's learning. Just her appeal to right out the gate. She's like, mm. Well, I think honestly, like I think this also speaks Gunning. to our need to have not not just racial diversity within our elected officials, but also socioeconomic diversity. Yes, yes. Please. because yeah. like that is somebody who fights like they have not they they have nothing to lose because yeah. they know that mm-hmm. they know how they can survive. Yeah, right. And, and I feel like people, I mean, I can even look at myself and know if I'm in a situation, there's a certain amount of things that I need. I don't have the mechanical skills to work on a car. You know, I know how to waitress. I've done that before. I know I could fall back on that. There's a right. number of different things. But if you've never been in those situations and now we have people that are elected officials mm-hmm. that like, I don't know, our current president, when's the last time we went grocery shopping? Never. Or we have a whole <laughs> cast of people who are committing all this tax fraud and yeah. Money laundering and uh, illegal lobbying with but, foreign countries. But my God, you don't report a tip. <gasps> yeah, yeah, but that, that's the pressure. You know, once you get out there, that lifestyle, you're not used to mm-hmm. having to do. To do yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. The next lady we have up on tap, I'm just going to call her Nell B. Pousset. Hmm. because I'm not really sure how to pronounce this last name. Okay. This is the only little snippet I found about her stuck in one of those Google books that's been scanned in, you know, like way in the way back recesses. Yeah. That she was part of a a voting block uh, in 1968. 70 mm-hmm. is her term um, of interracial candidates put forth by a, a group, a white group 
who favored annexation to stop the flow of black voters in Richmond and add more whites. So that hot damn. Yeah. Like we weren't even trying to hide this from the DOJ. No. Like. No. no. But that's the thing. See, if you if you. All right. So if you innately know something is wrong, right, or you think it's kind of wrong, but if you've been doing it for centuries, you know, it's kind of like, well, I know it's kind of probably wrong, you know, somewhere in the book, but we've been getting away with it all this time. Well, shit, hell, just throw it in there. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I mean, right. at this point, like, that's how I feel. The Commonwealth of Virginia is, is like even functioning now, you know, that our governor, he knows that he should step down. He's mm. done something wrong, but he's like, oh, shit, they've been doing this for, you know. I'm just going to keep on going. I got it. You know, it's fine. It's been. Virginia. Uh, it's Virginia. Uh, I can lead well, us all to racial healing, you guys. It's racist as Virginia. Well, well damn, you know. I just want to pause and bring up the fact that um, I recently found out that Ralph Northam still has a personal Twitter handle. So his only Twitter handle is not just at Governor VA. He oh, also still has one. at Ralph Northam. Oh, yeah. And I would like to take this time to read his bio. Oh, read oh it, please. Yeah. Read it. Virginia's 73rd governor, mm-hmm. husband, father, doctor, and veteran, classic car enthusiast, defender of Virginia values. Mm. Oh, the Virginia way? Hashtag Virginia way? Yeah. So to your the point. Virginia way is, is racist. That's, that's how I we've mean. been doing it forever. Exactly. Defending like it like a, like a knight of the, oh, excuse me. Um, Don't say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, that's the, you know. Mm-hmm. So they're not even trying to hide. I mean, you wouldn't, again, you, you commit, a, look at criminals. Why do you think criminals get caught? Career professional criminals get caught because they get comfortable in their crime and they eventually slip up. So if you keep doing it and you keep doing it, you're used to doing it, you know, well, eventually the DOJ is like, what the hell are y'all doing down there in Virginia? (laughs) What are y'all doing? Doing. Exactly. (laughs) You can't do that. Well, would you guys like a breath of fresh air? Yes, like it would a, be nice. A Shiro? Do you need a Shiro? Yes. Are you holding out for a Shiro? Because right now, I'm black people under the table, so I'm... Oh, I up next, we have our breath of fresh air is Mrs. Willie Dell. Oh, she's so nice. I just met her. She's so nice. Yes. You're going to love Willie Dell. Yes. She was appointed on July 5th, 1973, and she is the first African-American female appointed and elected to serve on council. Yes. Third district. Whoop, whoop. Mm-hmm. Um, but she <laughs> she ended her political career in 84. Like, when she was out, she was out. Like, let me just say, so it's from 73 to 84-ish. Mm-hmm. Her distinction and actually what became uh, kind of a thorn in her side is the fact that she was a come here and not a from here. She's originally from Rocky Mount, uh, North Carolina, born to a mother living on welfare. And she wanted to be a social worker when she was a kid. Um, when she became a city council member, City Hall would not give her an office space. Of course not. So she set up a card table and folding chairs in the City Hall lobby and held constituent meetings right there so everyone could see her. Because black people will be... They played will find a solution to she was all ready. problems. <laughs> she was ready. And she researched Richmond really hard. She did. Uh, she visited wastewater treatment plants. She went to every single public school. She learned the basics of city operation and budgeting by taking an instructional session uh, in D.C. for city council newcomers. And I love her quotes. I have a couple spread out through here because I really like her quotes. My eyes are just bugging at one of them. Sorry. Yes. I was blessed that that happened, she says. It comes down to this. It doesn't matter about gender, race, or political party. 
party. It's about having the best information to make the wisest decisions for the city. Willie Dell comeback. Yes, if that ain't the truth. Right? She was outspoken because, of course, and it bothered not only the white residents, but the black ones, too. And mostly because she was a come here and not a from here. And I love this quote. I need to get the tea for this one. Yes. Richmond is clicky and clannish, mm. even among the black folks. Yep. I didn't go to Ebenezer Baptist or St. Philip's Episcopal. I wasn't married to somebody in the right political family, not with the Lamberts. I didn't go to the right school. I'm just not one of them. It wasn't my politics that they disagreed with me about so much as where I came from. T. T. What does Mike say? That ain't shade. That's a tree. Oh, there's more tree coming for Mm -hmm. you. And Willie is still like this. Miss Dell is still like this right now. Beautiful soul. Love it. While on council, she introduced an inclusion resolution so that no city employee would be discriminated against. The version that was passed, though, did not include sexual orientation. But she included it in the original, though. Mm Mm-hmm. And they took that out. Okay. But, you know, 40 years later, last June, we corrected that. Oh, good God. I can't. 40 years. (sighs) Guys. Great. Anyway, so she was never afraid to say what, what was on her mind, and she liked to piss off Doug Walder. Of course, I bet she did. She didn't attend the meetings like when he called, snap, 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 come see me. Mm-hmm. She was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah, because that, cause that's a click. <laughs> Walder has a click. She ain't right? a click. But when she left politics in 84, she left it, and she moved on to a life of advocacy for the elderly and um, trying to improve the lives of those who live in Haiti. And she really is a truly giving and benevolent soul. Yes, We are blessed to have her in Richmond, I have to say, and we are also blessed by these quotes. I'm telling you, during the 2016 election, she was asked about the strong mayor form of government, and she wishes we hadn't returned to it. Hmm. Well, I'll just say there's not been a mayor in there that I would have supported. What's the problem with them? You're there. You're in charge. Fix things. What's stopping you? Well, I tell you, it takes more than a personality to get the real work done. Mm. Shade. I mean, tree. Oh, and this one? <laughs> I was going to say, that's just facts. Like, <laughs> Yeah, she is. Right. She gonna, she's going to lay down some hard facts for you here. All right. She threw a little shade at the Jones administration and their failure to produce a timely, comprehensive annual financial report, a.k.a. Like a the Capper. It's like a year later. It was a year later. Multiple yeah. times. Yeah. How do you manage? How do you govern? <laughs> I don't know how you do anything without knowing how much money you have to do it with. Okay. I don't know how you can get up in the morning, put on your pants, and walk into the office and say, I'm in charge when you don't know from crap. Listen. (laughs) Facts. Again, yeah, just hard facts. Like, where's the lie? Find it. I I mean, (laughs) the saddest thing is the fact that we have to acknowledge Hmm. how much of an improvement it is to have a mayoral (laughs) administration Get financial reports done on time. Timely. Okay, so I'm going to stop crying, laughing, um, and rejoicing for the Shiro that is Willie Dell. Yes. She was actually uh, part of that moratorium. So she was locked in place from 72 to 76. She also won re-election as part of the historic 1977-78 council. Well, historically black majority council. Along with Dr. Claudette Black McDaniel. Okay. Rep in the 8th District, and I bet y'all 8th District folks wish she was still alive. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm to sip some tea on that one, too. Oh, Lord. So she was the first black woman vice mayor from 84 to 90. Okay. Never made it to mayor, but that's okay. She was vice mayor to, to Jolene Williams, which if, if y'all don't have an aneurysm over her, I don't know what's going <laughs> to upset you today. <laughs> She's next. 
But she was viewed as a... I'm sorry. I just skipped ahead to Jeline and saw the word euthanasia. And okay. now I am... Yes, wait. Here. I'm hold it. Hold it. Hold it. That's why I said she's Try to next. hold it. Hold it. Hold it. I know it's hard. Try to hold it. Hold it. <laughs> so, yeah, she became uh, one of the five council members to form the first black majority uh, on Richmond City Council. This is Dr. Claudette Black McDaniel that we're talking about here. She was viewed as a very formidable politician and an invincible team with Willie Dell, according to Henry Marsh. Mm-hmm. She directed hundreds of millions of dollars in projects to her South Richmond district during her tenure. And Mm -hmm. that is why I say, I bet you the residents of the 8th district wish that Dr. McDaniel was still with us. Mm -hmm. She worked hard for that 8th district, man. She had a a radio program like we do Mm -hmm. uh, that she used as the voice of the people. And I did think it was interesting that the the men interviewed about her after she died was always like, oh, she was formidable. She was going to force you to change. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, doing the whole like angry black woman persona. Sometimes you got to roll with that. Mm -hmm. I think it worked for her, though. And so hats off to Dr. McDaniel. All right, here we go. Everybody hold on to their butts. Strap in, please. Um, We're going to try to briefly go through the tenure of Jaleen Williams because I'm telling you, your ears are just going to (laughs) burst on um, Women's History Month. She was on council from 1984 to 1994. 94, y'all. Jalene B. Williams, elected to District 1, 10 years on council, served two of them as mayor, only the second woman to hold that office. Jalene was a from here mm-hmm. of the correct family lineage. Oh, okay. And probably had an easy slide to victory all those years. She was a heckin' Catholic, by the way, and is most notable for being a huge figure in the Right to Life movement. Okay. That would be an understatement. She spent 34 years as the chairwoman wow. of the National Right to Life Committee. Wow. She was a chairwoman longer than I've been alive right yes. now. Correct. Wow. It was her life's passion to let slutty women know mm. that abortion was sending them to hell. Oh, okay. Can I read this quote? Yeah, please. Quote, from Jolene Williams. Abortion is like a signpost or billboard, which is a cover for the killing of the unborn child. She felt like being the most anti-choice candidate was actually what helped her win. Wow. She was touted as having basically really high leadership and competence abilities in this organization um, that provides to the pro-life movement through a program of education, legislation, and political action on the issues of abortion and euthanasia. And I am just sitting here right now. <clears throat> euthanasia. So, so okay, I, just, I, I have to ask. So right to life is, is so she is advocating that there should be no assisted suicide laws? That's okay. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. No, death by any hand other than God is unnatural. Okay. She spent most of her adult life advocating against the rights of women to choose at the state and national levels. We need to educate the public and legislators about abortion and what it does, she asserted. Okay. Oh, this? A wonderful part of the pro-life effort are services caring for the mother and her unborn child, Mrs. Williams said, adding that the ultrasound machine Mm. was super helpful in turning women against abortion. Mm. That's just really interesting, Um, Mm. especially thinking about that she was in power till 1994, and then when did Bob McDonald come along with him and uh, the ultrasound? The invasive... Mm -hmm. Ultrasound. Transvaginal ultrasound mm-hmm. requirement for abortion. So it's just interesting of like how it, it, the way I read that and the way that she kind of poses it is like they're using an ultrasound as a weapon to fight their cause. 
Yeah. Um, and when I say weapon, I mean tool might be their perspective of it. But yeah. again, the duality of, of who's on that side of right. things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just interesting when you're when you're using a medical equipment tool. Yeah. To pressure a woman into a choice that she didn't want to make. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, no woman wants to have an abortion. Like we're not going out and getting pregnant going, yes, now I get to have an abortion. Mm, mm, mm. That is not how that works. Okay. So that's Jalene. But Joyce W. Riddell from District 4, 1986 to 1990s. I mean, maybe she's a a little funnier. Okay. So her district was Southwestern Forest Hill, Westover Hills, and Woodland Heights. Um, She gave up work as a freelance legal secretary in 1988 Mm. to work part-time as a city council person. She won by 150 votes against a dude. Anyway, so during her first six months, she dealt with the controversy over a traffic plan that bitterly divided Forest Hill and Westover Hills neighborhoods, which I think is funny because traffic plans still regularly bitterly divide that area. Basically. (laughs) <laughs> Basically. In 1989, this is my favorite part. She proposed changes to city zoning laws that defined adult movie theaters, mm. prohibited hotels from leasing by the hour, and oh. prevented pornographic businesses from locating close to each other. Oh. She introduced the measures after rumors surfaced that a developer wanted to buy a property on Midlothian Turnpike for a pornographic complex. What do you do in those? Don't you know that? <laughs> is so concerned about you a pornographic complex good so lord so basically no no sex stores no adult movie not in district 4 theaters no that, that that's no. why they all go over to district 9 so, <laughs> like that's that's actually really a good point Melissa so yeah. it's interesting because you know we've had Mike Jones on before talking about the 8th and the 9th mm-hmm. districts yep. and speaking on how those districts have the least restrictive zoning laws in the city which basically means like it's a free for all yep. and the, the citizens and the residents do not have really a say because nope. they don't have to be asked Right. and so when we start to see things where frequently and this is something I was listening to a podcast recently around civility and you know what is civility defined as a lot of the times it's also the regulations that are put in place to tamp down a certain type of behavior or diminish certain types of people like restrictive um, whatever that might be and so when we see here like hey we're going to change zoning laws Mm -hmm. and really what this is is an effort to keep out certain certain things things. yep it's that same kind of duality of that Mm -hmm. so just she actually lost her seat in a four-way race in 1990 we bid her a fond farewell so the next notable that we're going to talk briefly about because we've talked about her before is gwendolyn c hedgepeth the reverend gwendolyn c hedgepeth of district 9 uh 1992 to 2004 on city council and i want to talk about whether she's more than her scandals Because when I did Google searches for her mm-hmm. to get, you know, a little bit of extra information than what we had the last time when we did our city That's council all scandals. Found. It's all scandals. Um, except for the hunger strike. But the hunger strike was reported on interestingly as well. When Hedgepeth went on a 23-day fast or hunger strike... And it was to get funding for the South Richmond Family Resource and Cultural Arts Center in the 9th District. Mm. It's trying to make a point. Yeah. And the... News media focused on how much weight she'd lost. Wow. And how hard was it for her to see pizza ads on TV? Not why are you doing this? Why is it important to you? And how does it, how do these two things relate? You will not find an article about that. Well, and again, so 
And yeah, it may be dramatic, but she's it's dramatic, but she's but it, how dramatic really is it? Because right. what denomination of the church was she? I'm I'm not positive about that. I don't know. So in in many denominations of especially Baptists and Pentecostal things like that, um fast are totally normal and fasts are actually used which you know people can argue it was drastic but in this way you know fasts are used when you're trying to draw closer to a spiritual connection with God and you pray and ask for something and you submit to total supplication to ask for that thing right or pray over that thing give that thing to God and so a 23-day fast asking for funding for this thing in her district for her that would have been as a pastor probably one of the highest sacrifices she could have made in her faith to show how dedicated she was to that request Mm -hmm. and instead of understanding that it's reported that you know how much weight she lost and I mean, and was it hard not to pick up a chicken wing? Wow. Like, seriously. Okay. It's offensive coverage. Yeah. Well, hard, of course, <laughs> in Richmond. So, yeah, everything you look up for Gwen Hedgepath is disgrace, dishonor, shame. Does the bribery charge, you know, does that deserve overshadowing the good things that she may have done? Is she that irredeemable? I don't think so. But maybe that's just me. You know, I like to give second and third chances. Anyway, let's do a, a brief woo-woo-woo moment. Oh, snap. Girl, look who's next. Run for your lives. Everyone run for cover. SOS. Mayday. Mayday. Code red. Duck and cover. Oh, uh-huh. oh Lord. your favorite in mine, 1994 to 1996, two years only, L. Shirley Harvey. She's been trying, not for a lack of, of, of effort. I'm telling you, she's been trying. She will run for anything that suits her fancy. Even mayor in uh, 2016, she ran for treasurer recently. I strongly recommend anybody to go to lshirleyharvey.com. And make sure you hit enter. And when you do... <laughs> Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. I don't think you are ready. I don't think you can ever be prepared for what that website is. (laughs) A lot. Uh, I think think it actually has the first um, Richmond politics meme on it. Calamity Jane Showalter. I can't. Well, she was claiming City Hall for God. That's a quote, by the way, everybody. Mm -hmm. Because City Hall is the center of sin Mm -hmm. for the city Mm -hmm. of Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. So she actually still comes to the city council meetings. And so that's mostly my experience with her is through her um, conversation, city council meetings. And she is always talking about like the reckoning to come and how God is going to expose the the fraud and the waste and all of these different things. I was really sad for her when the end times didn't come. When she predicted it. I was sad for her. Yeah, in 2016, as she was campaigning for mm-hmm. treasure, 2017, she was running for mayor. Yes, right. she was. Yikes. Okay, yeah. So it was mayor. And she was handing out her campaign literature at a, I believe I was at a crusade meeting. She came in and she passed out this paper and it was like this date, like, that was like maybe a week coming from where we that day when we were and it was like the end of the world's gonna come like next week so and vote for me for mayor <laughs> so vote for me for mayor because you know the the pits of hell gonna open well, up and swallow us Fran, maybe she could have stopped it oh my god seriously see this woman see her know her get on that website elshirleyharvey.com you'll either thank us or egg us the next time you see us <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to Viola Baskerville, 1994 to 1997. So she's a from here, but she's a BA from uh, the College of William and Mary, a law degree from the University of Iowa College of Law, and also studied abroad on a Fulbright scholarship. 
So that's pretty great. After council, she was on the Virginia House of Delegates from 1998 to 2005. And in 2005, she became the first African-American woman to seek the Democratic Party nomination for Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. And she came in second place in a four-way primary. Not bad, not bad. She served as co-chair of Governor Tim Kaine's transition team and was succeeded in the House by Democrat Jennifer McClellan. As the Secretary of Administration uh, in the Virginia Governor's Cabinet, she was responsible for overseeing several state government agencies, including the Virginia State Board of Elections, the Department of General Services, the Department of Human Resources Management, and the Department of Minority Business Enterprise. That is a lot of departments. Uh, She was the only African-American woman to serve in Governor Kane's Cabinet. The only. How do we feel about that? In 2010, she was appointed CEO of the Girl Scouts of Virginia. Is that how we got the Bobo cookies? When did we start on the Bobo cookies? I want to know. Maybe. That's a local troop decision, actually, uh, if you're wondering. Um, and Yes, please inform us all since it is kind of cookie season. Yeah, so the, the um, two bakeries, ABC Bakers, Little Brownie Bakers, in Richmond, you get the ABC Bakers, which is actually a subsidiary of Interbake, which is located here in Richmond. Right. But it's all just based on different areas. So if you go down to Tidewater, I think you get Little Brownie Bakers, which are the good ones. Also, Nova gets Little Brownie Bakers. These so- are really important facts, y'all, seriously, because the Bobo Thin Mints, they ain't hidden. Uh-uh. No, the best way to tell is like, do you have a Caramel Delights or Samoas at your local Girl Scout cookie yeah. station? Because Caramel Delights would be the ABC Bakers and yep. then Samoas would be Little Brownie Bakers. This is Old really important ones. information. So thank you so much, Jessica. <laughs> um, Viola Baskerville does have a lot of um, good stuff under her belt. And um, when she was elected to city council in 94, civil rights were a central part of her agenda. Um, and one of her first votes was for a resolution in response to a rash of hate crimes in the city. Um, the resolution specifically included sexual orientation as a category of prohibited discrimination. Yes. Later in the House of Delegates, she sponsored three bills prohibiting employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And the bills like that that followed did not make it out of committee who is shocked. Nonetheless, she always said it is vitally important to insist that people be treated fairly no matter how many times it takes to try and change the laws. Uh, We have the Right Reverend Dolores McQuinn Uh is up next and she was a member of the school board first uh, 1992-96 serving as vice chair and then she was elected to Richmond City Council in a special election on April 6, 1999 replacing Leonidas Young. Okay. When Delegate Dwight C. Jones was elected mayor of Richmond in November of 2008, Dolores McQuinn ran for the Democratic nomination for his 70th district house seat. She defeated lawyer Carlos Brown for the nomination and was unopposed in the general election. Good on her. And in 2017, she introduced a bill to protect and preserve historical black cemeteries. Because we need that. We do indeed need that that. So thank you, Delegate McQuinn. All right. This is fairly recent. We're jumping ahead because there were a handful of women who really just, you know, Mm -hmm. didn't do a whole lot, to be honest. They weren't that notable. They like served their, like they served their time. They punched their card and they were like, peace, I'm gone. Do you fought them? We're going to talk quickly about Michelle Mosby. She was on council from 2013 to 2016, repping the ninth. Yeah. And Michelle was the first black woman council president in 2015. So congrats mm. on that. Uh, you she, know that she helped man the box? We're going to talk about it. Oh, I was just making, sh- just making sure. Yeah, definitely going to talk about it because she talks about it a lot. And I mean, it's her claim to fame. So yep. we're going to talk about it. I mean, it's huge. So <laughs> It's huge. Uh, she ran for mayor in 2016. And she liked to point out, too, um, that if it was the old style of council, her, her buddies on council would have appointed her mayor anyway. So vote for her. Mm. 
She would have been mayor anyway. If elected, her top priority would have been deconcentrating the poverty that grips many of our Richmond neighborhoods. She's a realtor, salon owner, self-helper, and single mom. Um, During her time on council, she focused on creating jobs in the city, especially for those without college degrees or for those returning from serving time in prison. And she was indeed instrumental in ban the box legislation, which do either one of you guys want to discuss what ban the box legislation is? Keeping the box off of the checkbox off of applications that uh, mean you have to disclose whether you are a felon or not um, when applying for a job. So, But that's Michelle's claim to fame. And honestly, I mean, it's a lot more than what a lot of women or council members in general have gotten accomplished in one term. In one term. And it's the reason that it's so important. um, It's really simple. It's simple legislation. But the fact that people have to disclose or that at one point people did have to disclose that they were felons, it literally kept them from getting the job because they were getting clearly discriminated on um, during that process. And so because she was an advocate for reentry into society, you know, that was a major part of it because that's what most people, what ends up happening is you get out of jail, you've served your time, and then you can't find a job because the box is on the application. So you end up re committing a crime and you end up going back to jail and you become a repeat offender. So banning the box kind of gave people, if not a job, hope <laughs> right. that now you'll be able to actually apply for a job and get it. At least not have that particular bias glaring at a potential employer. Yep. All right. So now we're into the... Oh, sorry. Really quickly, oh, before we get off Michelle Mosby, there's something I just also wanted to put, put out there is that, you know, in 2016, something I really personally respected about her was that she came out really hard against Joe Morrissey. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. specifically for his past actions. She was out there with like one of the few candidates, I think, that took a very, very aggressive anti-Joe stance. Yeah. And, you know, not just for, for black people, but specifically for women, I felt like. Yeah. And I really just appreciated her voice on it and actually advocating for women in that moment. So thanks, Michelle. We're going to wrap it up a little bit. We're going to get to our final talking points with the five, count them, five women that are currently sitting on council. So we have a, a woman majority on council. I, I wonder if this is the first woman majority of council. If- I believe so. I really kind of wish that, that there was a little bit more attention to that because I kind of wish that this month, like in Women's History Month, mm-hmm. like or even really it should have happened like a year ago. Right. When they were um, elected. Right. Two years ago at that two point then. Yeah. Like of recognizing the fact that this is the first women majority. So maybe we should present them an award during the awards ceremony, a portion of, of council. You know. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Thanks for being ladies. So we've got Council President Dr. Cynthia Newell of the 7th District. We've got Ellen Robertson of the 6th District, Reva Trammell of the 8th, Kimberly Gray of the 2nd, and Kristen Larson of the 4th. Mm-hmm. Now, Robertson, Newell, and Trammell have been on council for a hot minute. Ellen Robertson was council vice president for like years and years and years. <laughs> 2009 to to 2016 and was never made president. She's currently a retired community and housing developer, but she also has a degree in nursing. Um, And she spent most of her time on council focused on housing solutions for her district and creating and uh, building up the Office of Community Wealth Building. Yeah. So I think that's that's probably her legacy is going to be the Office of Community Wealth Building. I'd agree. And then we've got Dr. Newbill. Dr. Newbill, she's been uh, on council since 2009, uh, rep in the 7th District. Her district seems to really like and appreciate her. She's got a bevy of degrees um, and she's held a bevy of positions, uh, program officer and patient-centered medical 
local home coordinator for the Richmond Memorial Health Foundation is one of them. And her career includes consultant for the Annie E. Casey Foundation, chief of staff to the Richmond City Manager, associate director of the VCU Grace E. Harris Leadership Institute, executive director of the National Black Women's Health Project, and executive director of the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science Head Start Program. Like, that's a lot. Yeah. Cynthia is going to have a nice, long legacy, I think. But Kristen Larson, she is, represents the 4th District. She was elected to council in 2016. She moved to Richmond in 2005 with her family, and three years later, she started, she started exploring kindergarten options for her son. And she stumbled upon Patrick Henry School of Science and Arts. So that's Virginia's first elementary charter school. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of feelings yeah. about charter schools around here. A yeah. whole lot of feelings. If you guys are all wondering, um, there's actually a current conversation about if there needs to be a middle school charter school that's being revived. And for the record, though, like before everyone panics, Jason Camera, superintendent, has said that he has no intention of pursuing he did. charter schools most recently. Yes, he even. did. So, yes, yeah, so uh, Kristen served on the board at Patrick Henry uh, for several years and filled the role as school spokesperson. And then she decided to run for school board because she wanted to do a little bit more for schools. And she won her 2012 election where she served as the co-chair of the RPS Facilities Committee and was the RPS board liaison to the Greater Richmond Chamber. She also sat on the City of Richmond Early Childhood Action Team. So that's Kristen Larson. I'll be interested to see what she does in uh, 2020 as a side note because yeah. her um, school board election was like a a large race with like five people, I five think. Five people. Yeah. And then their city council race in the fourth district would have been like three or four at I least. I think it was three, yeah. Um, so it's just be interesting to see what happens. But anyway. She runs again. Mm-hmm. And then we've got Crave Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> the recent joining as one. Oh, God. Of Kim Gray and Reva Trammell. No, we'll talk about them separately because they are separate entities, mm-hmm. despite what you may think. <laughs> despite the, the tag teaming on council. So uh, Reva Trammell, originally, I believe, a Surrey girl, uh, won her first time, her first seat at City Council, May 5th, 1998. She was reelected in 2000, and then scandal hit. Oh, snap. And if you really want to, you can um, go back to our Scandals episode where we talk about that. Um, I don't know if I really feel like uh, rehashing much of that right now. Oh, Lord. What's, where, where, where are we at on time? Oh, we... We're, yeah, we're we're running short. So we're just going to go whoop past Reva right now because she's had her thing. She ran again and lost in 2004 because she, you know, she couldn't she couldn't run. If we focus on like things that she's done, though, I would say that like her yes. focus has really been on, um, from my perspective at least, and what I've seen lately, and from conversations with people in the eighth, mm-hmm. is that a lot of her focus is on like fixing the day to day needs yes. and yeah. like the immediate needs, and sometimes it doesn't feel like it's necessarily like policy solutions, right? But it's more of like you know she's very much there for her community, and it's it's she focuses to... on the senior citizens. Yeah. That's so, focus. you know, if you look at like just Our different people. things, like, you know, there's there's some people that do things with policy. And then there's other people that are trying to do like more local at home kind of change. And mm-hmm. in my experience, she's been kind of the former. Yep. And you can get your uh, smoke detector as long as Donald Trump keeps giving us for uh, funding for these smoke detectors. And the other that also speaks probably to like the 8th district climate and mm-hmm. like what people are needing in the 8th district. Because I think when people are looking for basic needs, which yeah. is what Reva is day to day providing Doing, people and helping yeah. create access for people that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, in other districts that might be wealthier and have wealthier constituents that aren't necessarily starved for those basic necessities, mm-hmm. there might be electing people that are doing different things. That's cool. So what is she doing for the Hispanic group that's in her district? That's a growing population in the eighth. Yeah. And that's what's also very interesting is that, like, you know, in my experience, when she says that she's talking about, like, her her people, it's very much like people that are her supporters. And it is not necessarily the most friendly 
environment mm. by far. Isn't that the political climate we're in, though, really? Um, she really is the embodiment of, if you didn't vote for me, then you're not my constituent. Or, or if you don't own a house, too. That's mm-hmm. another That's another thing. That's another hot-button thing that's going on with her right now, yeah. the renters versus homeowners thing. Yeah. So I just like, always encourage thinking about, like, who's being elected in these districts. Right. And, like, if there are things, it's, like, it's symptomatic. And who's voting? Yeah, who's yeah. voting? Exactly. Because she keeps getting voted in, so who's, so who's actually voting? So this is why mentioning Reva it within our Women's History Month talk is important. Mm-hmm. This is the place that she fits in. And lastly, we're going to hit on Kim Gray real quick. All right, the second district. She spent eight years on school board. For that, though, she has 15 years of involvement in nonprofit and civic organizations centered around helping children. Um, and she's been a foster and adoptive mother. Mm-hmm. She has lots of children, and <laughs> most of her work really is involved around helping kids have a better future. So, yeah, in 2008, she was elected to serve on the school board for the second district, and she was one of the absolute most outspoken, and she has continued that um, into her term on city council. Hmm. If I remember, isn't she? So she's elected the second district, and is it that she, is it that she's the first black person elected to the second district, or the first black woman elected to the second district? I believe it's. I think it's the first, first black, black woman. woman. Okay. Because I think there was a black male before her. Yeah, but I can't. I can't tell you who off the top of my head. Sorry, folks. We'll Google that and put it up on Twitter or something yeah. later if it's an important factoid for you. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking also when we think about frame of reference of like frame of reference of like who is electing whom and like in the second mm-hmm. district, and you also look at some of like Kim's policies and everything like that. Yeah, just an interesting dynamic. Well, I think um, you know a lot of her policy ideas too may be shaped by the fact that she worked for both governors Warner and King. You know? And her father was a, a prominent black Republican, actually, in Richmond. Oh, well, if you want to know Kim's story, you can read the most recent um, bio in a local publication. Yeah. Yeah. You'll find it. You know what we're talking about. Okay, so we've covered all of these ladies. And yeah, we're running short on time, but I do want to uh, just go through a quick talking point with you. So like I've mentioned throughout this entire episode, simple Google searches for the political accomplishments of these women, even 10 pages deep, Mm. don't come up with a fraction of the amount of articles and content a quick search for their male colleagues will turn up. wonder why. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder why. And it's not as if they didn't do as much. Right. In fact, they probably did more, but the scandals show up Mm -hmm. or nothing shows up. It's frustrating. Well, you know, they don't want women in politics anyway. So if we just kind of like control the narrative. We just mess it up with our feelings and our hysteria. If if we just kind of control the narrative and and erase your legacy, then you don't exist. So either you're genteel and you tow the the line and you're from here and you're from the right lineage or you're an angry black woman. Those are the categories that you fall into as uh, women in Richmond politics. I also kind of wonder how much like women in Richmond politics have felt the need to moderate their actions mm-hmm. and what kind of an impact that has as far as like the media coverage goes, because it, back to what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Like, you know, choosing how to run your candidacy, depending on, mm-hmm. you know, what that's going to mean for you getting reelected. Yeah. Keeping your narrative instead of it ta- being taken from you. Well, if you think <clears throat> about like and knowing also how the media is going to bias things. And yep. for example, somebody that. You know, I've just happened to have read, looked at a fair amount of like past press on them, Chuck Richardson, mm-hmm. and even seeing like after he had these attacks on him as a black man, um, you know, he held a press conference for it and sat down and talked to the press and had a very clear stance and very vocal stance mm-hmm. um, in opposition to that. And, you know, when you also have an environment where that's the same time period where somebody's saying that like city council is very clicky. 
And, you know, what does that mean to not feel like you even have support of your your white or your black um, counterparts Mm -hmm. in the situation, your colleagues? And are you going to make the decision to stand out and speak out against these things? Or are are you maybe going to try to, like, moderate yourself to not stick out because you're there for the work? And you're not willing to risk, of course, like being showy and also risk putting yourself under attack for things mm-hmm. um, that m- maybe you could just continue to do some work. Well, um, that and that also depends on, too, the, the click, I think. just I mean, and that's so yeah. important in Richmond because, you know, nobody was more showy than Douglas Wilder. But he's also click alpha male, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So when you when you're funded by strong, you know, <laughs> by strong by strong funders, you know, and you've got people that are willing to back you. You can, you know, say things um or toe the line a little bit. Otherwise, you know, you risk the chance of being a one-term politician. I think like a, as and not even a footnote. Hmm. I think, you know, drawing this conversation out to something that's also currently in in local news is the um conversation around Governor Northam's PAC and did they or did they not offer white women candidates $1 million of campaign funds when there are already two candidates of color in the race? There you go. And like, you know, what does that say? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Hashtag Virginia way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I really would be interested to see if um, if after this November election, somebody pulled VPAP reports and looked to see what candidates stopped donating to different people based on um, who spoke out against Northam this year. Yeah. Oh, it's going it, to it'll it'll show. It'll show. Just say that. Stay tuned for that episode, folks. Um, and on that note, happy Women's History Month. And Fran, mm-hmm. can you take us out, please? I sure can. Flint still has dirty water, but um, Jaden Smith is working on something with that right now. Go check that out. On our Twitter page, RPS is still not fully funded, but we got a budget that says about to veto. And Richmond is still most certainly racist, but we're working on it. And sexist. And sexist. Thanks, ladies, for having this discussion with me today. As always, catch us on all social media at RVA Dirt and listen to us every Wednesday right here on WRIRLP. 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. That's 11 a.m. on Wednesdays for RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 mania. I wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs>